0: Welcome, dear brothers and sisters, to this afternoon's worship at Grace Baptist Church. We are in the house of the Lord and we feel the presence of His Spirit among us. And uh, the call to worship emphasizes on the loving God who keeps count of our tossing and treasures our tears, who is for us and emboldens us to say that because of Him, We will not fear. Let me read Psalm 56, 1 to 4 and 8 to 11. And as I read it, try and personalize it in your heart and follow along with the words. Oh God, have mercy on me, for people are hounding me. My foes attack me all day long. I am constantly hounded by those who slander me, and many are boldly attacking me. But when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. I praise God for what he has promised. I trust God. So why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. My enemies will retreat when I call to you for help. This I know God is on my side. I praise God for what he has promised. Yes, I praise the Lord for what he has promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? And can mere mortals do to me? Let's rise as we go to the Lord in prayer. Abba Father, we approach your throne of grace this afternoon. Lord, we acknowledge that we are sinners, but we are truthfully grateful, Lord, that we are saved by grace. We thank you for your mercy and love, and for the work of our Lord and Savior in your plan of salvation, without which, Lord, we will be condemned. And dear Lord, as we later partake of the elements of the supper that was instituted by our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Maybe we recall afresh, Lord, of the pain you have to go through, the shame and suffering, so that, Lord, we will be truly grateful and also joyful that all this was done by our Lord and Saviour to reconcile us back to you, O oh Father, Almighty and our Maker. And so, dear Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will drive us that, like the old folks of old, our worship this morning or this afternoon, Lord, will be acceptable to you, which is our reasonable service. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Indeed, may our worship glorify our Lord. Let us take some time to welcome one another, the person on your left and your right, into worship this first Sunday of May. we welcome the person on our left and our right. Let us ponder upon the psalm that we have just read together. Who is God to you? What image do we have of this God? What does it mean when we say that He is our Creator, our King, that He is almighty and all-loving, that He is our Saviour? Let us think upon these things as we gather to worship Him. Let us behold our God.
2: Tremble at his voice, all creatures. Savior risen now to
1: tossings and our turnings, and put our tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? This I know, that you are for us, that whether in peace or in sorrow, you have taught us to say, it is well, it is well with my soul.
3: This is the first Sunday of the month, and it's our practice that we uh, go ahead and have the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a very significant uh, part of the church and the life of the church because it helps us to remember what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. Oftentimes, when we go through the Lord's Supper, people will concentrate on the elements. They'll concentrate on uh, the method and what all transpired. But the Bible also is quite clear as to what is the behind the Lord's Supper. What is it that drove God to have his son Jesus Christ die on the cross? And so I'd like to take you this morning through just four simple words, passages that will help explain better the mind of God when he sent his son to die on the cross. The first one is 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. And in this verse, it says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so in the heart of God, in his heart, is this passion, this intense desire that all would be saved from the wrath of God and be saved from the penalty of sin, and so this is what drives the gods uh, to go to the extent that he did. Also, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so coupled with this intense desire of God to see each and every one of us saved and be reconciled to Him is this long suffering. He's willing to wait each and every one of us out until we make up our minds, until we ask Him and want Him to be our Savior. And so people cannot ask and, and believe that God is some kind of bully and that he is pressuring us and he's pushing us and he's forcing us into this decision. God is patient. And then also in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so in the mind of God, in his whole plan of salvation, he knew that he had to satisfy his justice. He could not be an unjust God and just let our sins pass. But he sent his son to die on the cross for it, us. And this because of his great love for us. So if we look back at these three passages just by themselves, not going into many other passages that are available, we see that in the heart of God, he had this intense desire to see us uh, be saved. He had this intense desire to be patient with us. He has this immense love in order to see see us saved and has sent his son to pay the price for our sins. But it doesn't stop there because it says this great message, this great message of hope on the part of God has to be carried out through you and I who do know Jesus Christ as our Savior. It was not given to us to just uh, consume upon ourselves or to hold to ourselves or hide to ourselves. Rather, it is to be revealed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20-21, through 21, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in many ways, when the church practices the Lord's Supper, it is a way, it is an opportunity for us to be his ambassadors. And if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then as you see us practice this and receive this, you know that the, what was behind this. You know the heart of God. You know the sacrifice of God for our sins. And I hope that that will draw you to him and that you will respond to him. Just as we who already know him ought to also respond by being willing to be ambassadors and to share this great message with all who God brings across our path. Let's pray together. Father, as we come and gather as your people, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would strike the significance of this elements to our hearts. The cup, Father, which represents the blood, the bread which represents the body. But more than that, Lord, may it cause us to humbly rejoice and appreciate and acknowledge the great heart that you had behind us, that you want every one of us to be saved. And I pray, O Father, that we will respond to this in a very positive way. Lord, thank you for the sacrifice of your son, for by it there is no other way by which we could have been saved. And we thank you, Lord, for this. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy
3: which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. The Lord also took the cup, and this is what he said to his disciples. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Bible also tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Please drink ye all of it. If you would please pass your cups to the nearest aisle, the ushers will collect them from you.
0: Well, we'd like to welcome everyone again to the house of the Lord. We'd just like to acknowledge those of you who are here for the first time. Anyone here on the right side of the auditorium? Any here, anyone here for the first time? No? How about on the left side of the auditorium, on my right? Anybody here for the first time? Well, it means that we are all the regular family of our Lord, worshipping here. So we are not strangers, and therefore we will be very delighted to worship the Lord with one another here today. Let me just draw our attention to some key announcements. we got so many of them. I urge you to bring back the announcement slip, pray about it, and support it when you can. Firstly, this afternoon, we will have our DS classes, Uh, Upstairs here on the second floor sanctuary, we'll continue with Deuteronomy. And on the first floor library, the essentials of discipleship. For the children, your lesson today will be for the second year primary two, we are to love God only. Acts 4.32 and 5.11. And for the primary three, God's law is given to Israel. And parents and grandparents help to try and get them to really understand the truth from the Bible. The next announcement is about the newlywed couple gathering on the Saturday, 7th of May, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. These are for newly married couples. We like to gather you together, and uh, I heard there will be some of the older ones who will be coming alongside you and grow together with you in your life as newlyweds. Last but not least, the baby dedication on Sunday, May the 15th. And so please make your reservations with the church mobile office located just outside the sanctuary. The children are dismissed for their junior church. And our ushers will come and wait on us for our tithes and offering. The red bag is for the general offering and the green bag for rebuilding fund. Uh, While we are doing that, um, Brother Chong Tian, Elder Chong Tian will come and make an announcement.
4: On behalf of the uh, Pastor and Elder's Board, and the Pastoral Search Committee, I'm going to update you about our Pastoral Transition Matter. Remember that three weeks ago, Pastor Arnold announced to you all that Ian Bunton, after a time of of earnest seeking Lord's uh, mind, has finally decided to make himself available to lead uh, GBC as our next lead pastor. Now the leadership, and uh, together with the Pastoral Search Committee, We really believe firmly that God is directing Ian Bunton to Grace Baptist Church. And if I borrow Pastor Arnold's word, Ian Bunton is a unique gift of God to Grace Baptist Church at this time. We see that God's hand is in guiding the whole process. And we marvel at his timing. Now, I'm going to update you about some of the processes that are coming ahead of us. Following careful deliberation, the ECL recommend that a formal English congressional meeting be held on 22nd of May to approve and vote on Yen Banton as the next lead pastor for GBC. That means that the notice will be given out next week on 8th of May. We also will hold a town hall meeting on the 15th of May to allow communication and for you to ask questions related to this issue and you'll not be present here but we will present the background leading to this transition and any message that may be from him now how do we prepare ourselves for this meeting? This is very important pray, pray and pray. such matter is of great importance to the whole church so we urge Everyone, to be earnest prayer before the Lord. Please clarify any uh, queries or doubts you have uh, with ECL with transition team. Now we are available ourselves for you to come to us and clarify your thoughts. And vote, therefore, vote with clear understanding and having prayed and sought the mind of the Lord, so that as a church we may walk in tandem with what God has planned for us. A strong endorsement will be a great encouragement to Ian. Now, I also want to tell you that the, the transition at Emmanuel Church, uh, God has directed a candidate, Steve G, and he was voted in as a pastor there. So Ian is helping him to transition and pass over his responsibility to him. You also need to pray for the permission for God to grant the, uh, the employment uh, pass to uh, Ian Bunton. So, all this we need really to pray very hard and together in unity.
1: Tess, yes. Uh, let us rise for the doxology.
5: us remain standing for our scripture reading taken from Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14. Let's read together. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us all our lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works.
1: As we center our worship on our need for redemption.
5: From our self righteousness, from our pride and our greed and from our sinful nature. Let us find. Let us attune ourselves to our Master and Maker. With humble hearts, let's sing our next song, Before You I Kneel.
2: Before You I For the work of my hands For this is the day You've given Your servants. I will rejoice and be glad For the strength I have to live and breathe For each skill Your grace has given me For the needs and opportunities that will glorify your great name.
6: Let us pray. Father God, you are God who is holy love, and you love us as your own. But we rejected you and turned away f- from you when we sin. Yet now, through the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross, we, guilty rebels to your rule, can find forgiveness and pardon. Now we can be reconciled to you and enjoy this relationship with you as it was originally meant to be. I pray that as we look at your Bible this afternoon, I pray in the words of an old saint, that your Holy Spirit be our teacher and guide, that your word be our rule and authority, and that your glory be our main concern. Help all of us glimpse Jesus Christ as revealed in your word. And then, Lord, enable us to live a life shaped by the cross of Christ. Grant that this preaching of your word magnify Jesus Christ. We pray this for our good and for the praise of your name. In Jesus' name, Amen. He knew he had done something wrong. It felt almost like he had a hundred kg weight on his chest. The feeling of guilt weighed heavily on him. He shouldn't have given in to the pressure of his boss at work and forged the numbers on his report. The pressure for him and his team to succeed in this project was high. Failure could mean people getting retrenched in this poor economy. All this led him to justify lying about the figures just to get this project. He knew whatever ways he tried to justify it. He had compromised ethically, and the guilt was weighing on him. She felt she had done something bad. The voice of her conscience was speaking to her, convicting her of her guilt. She had gossiped about and slandered another person in church. She felt that this person did not support her and her plans and she was upset. And as a result, there is now talk going around about that person and this talk has little basis this has affected the person and his reputation. She knew whatever ways she tried to justify it. She had done something morally wrong and the guilt, her guilt was screaming at her. We have all known or felt guilt. Since Adam and the woman sinned against God and followed their self-centered desires in Genesis 3, in the event known as the fall, all human beings continue to sin and as a result, have felt guilt. Some psychologists and sociologists tell us that guilt comes when we fail to act according to some socially constructed standards. Scripture, however, tells us that we sin when we act against God's good standard and transgress against Him. We commit offences against God in our thoughts, in our words, and our deeds. In short, we sin. And as a result of sin, we know and feel guilt. Being guilty is the result and is the feeling of having committed something wrong or having failed in an obligation. This sin guilt, this conviction of guilt is because of sin. And it has plagued human beings since the event of the fall. And we have tried Various means to escape this, haven't we? We try to escape it, we try to medicate it, we try to numb it, we try to deny it, or we try to justify ourselves, all in order to avoid this feeling of being guilty. Have you ever felt guilty? Have you felt the weight of guilt on you? Have you felt your conscience speaking to you and convicting you of your guilt? I'm sure you have, and you are not alone. This is also the experience of the psalmist in Psalm 130, Psalm 130. We see the psalmist struggling in the depths of his guilt. And what does he do? What means does a psalmist employ to deal with his guilt? Turn to Psalm 130 and follow along as I read Psalm 130, verses 1 to 4. Psalm 130 For the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He who redeem Israel from all His iniquities. We see here, the psalmist urging the people of God, when faced with the depths of the guilt of their sin, to cry out to God who brings plentiful redemption. But in order for us to really appreciate this psalm, we need to know a little bit about the backdrop to Psalm 130. Psalm 130 is part of the songs of ascents, as seen in the superscript, you know, the part of the, your, your psalm, which has, they write uh, just above Psalm uh, verse 1, okay? Uh, psalm 130 verse 1, the superscript of your psalm. Okay? is part of several psalm songs sung by the Jewish people as they made their way in a procession up to the temple at Jerusalem. And they do this uh, for their great annual events. These songs were sung to prepare themselves for the festivals. So picture with me long lines of people climbing the slopes up to Jerusalem and listen to their songs and choruses as they make their way to their holy city. This is the context in which this psalm song is sung. And with its stress on sin and forgiveness, Psalm 130 may have been used as preparation to the annual day of atonement. This psalm bemoans and expresses regrets for sin, for our waywardness, moving from individual lament to a corporate confession. But there's something else here you see that this psalm also moves from the depth of guilt to the heights of hope. Parallel almost the procession, as the procession moves up from the plains up to the hill where Jerusalem is sited. Psalm 130 is a song by the Jewish people first and foremost. But it is a song in which modern-day Christians are also urged to confess our sins, assured of our forgiveness, by a God of steadfast love and plentiful redemption. So let us now turn to the psalm itself. Psalm 130 comprises of four couplets, four pairs of verses. And as we work our way through the psalm, we will listen to two verses at a time. So Psalm 130, verses 1 to 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. Mercy. Can you hear the real emotion here? The psalmist cried out to Yahweh God and he pleads that God hear his voice. He asks that God be attentive. You know, when you're deeply passionate about something, you repeat the same thing a few times. And we see here the psalmist saying the same thing three times in different ways cry, hear, be attentive. This shows the deep passion and emotion the psalmist has. And what does he cry out to God for? What does he cry out to God for? The cry is for mercy. For the psalmist has plumbed and examined the depths of his soul. And he found sin deeply rooted in it. The weight of guilt is heavy on him. And what does he do? What does he do? Does he try to escape, to medicate, to numb, to deny, to justify himself? No, he cries out to God. My friends, picture yourself trapped in a pit. You cannot see, it is dark. You cannot hear, it is deathly quiet, except for the convicting voice of your conscience. You despair. How will you get out? The psalmist recognizes that he's in the depths of a pit and because of his sin guilt. He desires the restoration in the relationship between himself and God. Only personal forgiveness could do that. And this depended on one thing. It depended on one thing. Not on his meticulous observing of the ceremonies or the extent of the fasting or anything that he can do. But he depends on the mercy of the Lord the psalmist realizes that he cannot rescue himself. And instead, he confesses his need. And this is why the psalmist begins by saying, he's crying out of the depths. He wants God to look pitifully on him as one in a filthy pit, unable to get out on his own. He realizes that his rescue lies in the hands of a merciful God. He cries out to God for mercy and forgiveness. My friends, some of you may be in the depths of darkness of a pit yourself, being weighed down by sin guilt. Will you stop trying to rescue yourself? Will you acknowledge and confess your sin and waywardness? Will you turn to God and ask and beg for God's mercy? Will you cry out to God? It is night. You are in the night. But the psalm song, thankfully, doesn't end on this note. It climbs and begins to soar. The psalmist continues in the next two verses, in verses 3 to 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. And in these verses, we almost begin to hear the steady climb towards assurance and hope. Although it's a psalmist who is speaking, he's clearly giving voice to the thoughts God has given to him. What are your first thoughts of God? What do you picture God as? Because the first step of the climb of the depths of the pit is to realize the wonder of the fact that God does not deal with sinners as we might expect him to. In the case of believers, God does not keep a record of sin, for he has wiped the slate clean. God does not proceed like a policeman or a persecutor and gather the evidence against us with a view to sentencing and punishing us. He is not like this strict um, police officer who goes around, ah, I'm carrying more and more evidence of your wrongdoing just to punish you. God is not like that. Because if he did that, there would be no hope. Oh Lord, who could stand? This is a rhetorical question. And what's the answer to this? Oh Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one. No one can stand before God. As is written, none is righteous. No, not one. None of us will stand righteous before God. There is no hope for any of us none of us deserve forgiveness. But God is not a policeman or persecutor. For with God, there is forgiveness. The God the psalmist has appealed to is a God of mercy. And to show mercy is to forgive. God is merciful to forgive our sins. This, however, doesn't make this a cheap option. Forgiveness is costly. We all know the cost of forgiveness. To forgive someone else is to forego your right for your own vindication. Right? I mean, if you want to forgive someone, we need to give out our right that, uh, to, to say that we are right in the first place. Right? To forgive someone else is to give up the desire to hold on to your grudges. I know some of us, it's easier to hold on to our grudges than to forgive someone else. Okay, but to forgive someone, for us, is to give up holding on to our grudges. To forgive someone else is to let go of your comfort and take the difficult step of reconciliation. That's the cost for us. But for God, it is even costlier. For justice must still take its course. There must be payment for sin, suffering and death. Under the old covenant, this involved the slaughters of animals. We see bulls and goats being sacrificed on a day of atonement. Under the new covenant, the suffering and death, they were endured by God himself in Christ. But this costly work of Christ on the cross achieved what the animals could never do. Indeed, it is only because of God's purpose fulfilled in Christ that forgiveness was possible through the animal sacrifices for the people of God under the old covenant. And this assurance of forgiveness is only open to the contrite and broken, to those who share the sentiments of verses 1 and 2, to those who cry out to God and confess their need. And what's the effects of God's forgiveness on the psalmist? God is feared. You see, my friends, true forgiveness does not breed complacency or carelessness. Quite the opposite. Forgiveness creates an even greater awe of God. You develop a e- greater reverence and deeper respect for God. You'll be humbled by God's love and holiness, that God will forgive a sinner like you and me. You will rejoice in your forgiveness by a God who is holy love. From night to glimmer of morning. My friends, Will you turn to God confessing and repenting of your sins? If you do, you will find forgiveness with God. You can trust and have full assurance of this. And you will know the joy of forgiveness. Have you ever waited for a parcel or something that you really wanted to arrive? You know, you go online, you order something, okay, and you wait for the parcel to arrive. And in the meanwhile, while waiting for the parcel to arrive, you are extra alert and you keep a lookout for the postman during the time when he comes by. You wait with anticipation. And it's this anticipation we see, that the psalmist, we see the psalmist waiting on God in verses 5 to 6. We hear, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in this word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. You know, fear has a bad reputation in our contemporary times. To say that we fear God almost seems like a bad thing. You know, to, to say that we fear something seems to suggest that we will avoid it. However, the description of the effect of fear of God on the summits is described in verses five to six. And what does this fear do? It makes the psalmist long for not to escape God's punishment but long for God Himself. I wait for the Lord. The psalmist here is pictured as waiting in anticipation for God. And the psalmist is not basing his hope on feelings, but on God's word. And what word here likely refers to is God's promise of forgiveness. The promise as described here is likely the keeping of the Day of Atonement, a feast day and command given to God's people in Leviticus. You see, the Day of Atonement was celebrated because God Himself commanded it, God prescribed it, not out of His own whim and fancy, but so that His people might have a solid basis for for their forgiveness. It was a Day of Atonement, that is, for reconciliation with the God against whom they have sinned. And the ritual for the Day of Atonement, if you look at it, is probably the most vivid of any ceremony the Jewish people celebrated. Picture with me, the scrape goat over whom the sin has been confessed and let loose, never to be seen again. It's as if God is saying to His people, just as this scrape goat goes into the desert, you will hear no more about the sins you confess today. And to top it all, top it all off, it's on this day that the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. And this, in Old Testament terms, it means entering into the very presence of God. This the high priest did, not for himself, but as a representative for all the people. So picture with me, the forgiven sinner, in, uh, attending this day of atonement, as he watches the high priest entering the Holy of Holies, the forgiven sinners could feel, I have been brought near to my God. And this thought not only serves to identify, intensify his longing for God, as verse 6 expresses, this is what the psalmist describes when he sings, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. You know, you ask any soldier on night guard duty what he's looking forward to. And what will he say for the morning? When you're tired from your duty, you anticipate the morning, the dawn, when you can rest. And it is this anticipation that the psalmist captures as he tells us how he waits for God. As one commentator, Eric Lane Epley writes, The soul who has been to hell and back cannot have enough of God. The psalmist eagerly waits for God. Are you waiting in anticipation for God? Do you desire God Himself? Or do you desire His gifts, His blessings, and even His forgiveness more than you want God Himself? Do you desire forgiveness because you simply want freedom from guilt? Or do you really Desire one God Himself. Or as someone once put it, do you still desire heaven if God is not there? The psalmist desires God above all else and waits in anticipation. From night to glimmer of morning, you eagerly wait. <coughs> finally, finally, the psalmist soars to the heights of hope and joy. You can almost hear a crescendo in this psalm song as it concludes with verses 7 to 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him there is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The psalmist moves from verse 1 and 2 from individual lament and prayer to corporate encouragement in verses 7 to 8. Assurance of forgiveness is not the only fruit that we get from calling out to God. Those who experience the heights of God's forgiveness feel love for God and express it in love for others. The soul which has truly experienced forgiveness and reconciliation wants everyone to share it and you will do your best to encourage others to know it. If you know the hope joy or forgiveness. You will want to share this hope and joy with others around you. Do you have difficulties testifying of God's forgiveness? Are you indifferent to others? Could it be that your indifference is due to your shallow experience of God's love and forgiveness and consequent lack of joy? And we see the psalmist's clarity on of his thoughts. We see the clarity of the psalmist's thoughts on this matter. He is clear as to what God is like. God is a God of unfailing, steadfast love. His love, God's love for his people never ceases. We can almost hear the joy of the psalmist as he continues with this psalm song. He continues to sing that with our God of steadfast love, there is plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. I really love this. Not just redemption, not just the idea of sinners being brought back with a price, but plentiful redemption. Abundant, rich, lavish, generous, bountiful redemption. God's chief work, full redemption, is further explained and elaborated in verse 8. God Himself will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Redemption is all of God's initiative and God's work. God will deliver Israel from the mess it had gotten itself into because of its waywardness and iniquities. God will deliver Israel from the depths that had overwhelmed the nation. God will forgive them their sins and inspire them to repent and turn back to Him wholeheartedly. All of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. In verse 8, Also, give hints at the gospel of Jesus Christ, which will bring that total forgiveness, opening the way into God's presence, not merely symbolically, but in full reality. And it is this total forgiveness and full experience of the presence of God as God's own people that Paul talks about waiting for in Titus chapter 2, verse 13 to 14, which our worship team has just read. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. With God, there is plentiful redemption in our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And God will redeem us it's church from all our iniquities and sins. From night to glimmer of morning, you eagerly wait. Hope is dawning. So what? What now? Now, if we are honest with ourselves, the way many of us deal with guilt is we tend to flee from our guilt. We tend to medicate, uh, medicate away our guilt. We tend to explain away the guilt of sin rather than come before God to confess, to cry out to God for mercy. But God has really provided plentiful redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel has dawned, and in the light of this morning, we can have the assured hope that God will forgive, and we can find release from our sin guilt. Therefore, for Christians, you and I, we are urged, I urge you, to confess our sins, be assured of our forgiveness by a God of steadfast love and plentiful redemption. So what? What now? What does this mean for us? As individuals, we need to ask ourselves, are there areas you need to come before God and confess your sin? Can you identify the cry of the psalmist in verses 1 to 2? I can Even as I was preparing in the past two weeks for this afternoon's message, God was convicting me of my guilt. Through his word and his word brought to me by others, God has shone light in areas where I have sinned and have done wrong. And I thank the church elders for this, for loving me enough to confront me on my sins. In the midst of my busyness, you know when you're busy, it tends to have a numbing effect on you God has been gracious in not letting me go. The Holy Spirit, He has been pursuing and convicting me of my sins. I've been wrestling with the guilt of my sins. And the temptation is to let loose my inner lawyer. All of us have our inner lawyer, you know. To justify myself or to find ways to escape or to medicate, numb and deny my sin guilt. But that's not the path to freedom from guilt. And that's not the path to joy. Rather, we know freedom from guilt, that it comes from crying out to God and confessing our sins. My brothers and sisters, do you have an area where God is convicting you of your sin? Come before God and confess your sin, fully assured of your forgiveness. And then for some of us, maybe it means taking the next step of asking forgiveness of others if you have sinned against them. Taking the next step of making restitution. Secondly, as a church, are there areas where we need to come before God in brokenness and confess our sins and shortcomings? Grace Baptist Church, are there areas we need to bring before God confessing our failures and lack? We talk about experiencing joy as a church. And there are some people who ask me, what does it mean? Uh, Are we as a church not joyful? What does it mean to experience joy as a church? And here, the psalmist in this psalm tells us of the joy of experiencing forgiveness and the deliverance from our waywardness. And I stand with you in this area. I mean, there are areas as a pastor I know I've failed in and I've offended God. But I do desire redemption and the joy that comes from God's forgiveness. So I want to look to God for forgiveness. So my challenge to you, are there areas where we as a church, we need to confess before God? Perhaps like the Corinthian church, it's our sin of being divisive and looking out for our own interests or the interests of our own in-group. Or perhaps we've been careless with our words. We have gossiped, slandered, discouraged others in our midst. Or perhaps we have let our love for God and love for others cool. We have treated God and others with indifference. Do we desire this salvation joy described by the psalmist to be seen and experienced? Don't you want this joy to be abundantly visible and heard in our church? Then we need to come before God as a church to confess our sins pray then as a church that we will come before God with a broken spirit and contrite heart, daily coming before him, repentance and faith. And pray that God will restore to us the joy of his salvation. And brothers and sisters, we can come before God individually and as a church in confession of our sins because we have this assurance and hope not a hope that our own efforts or sincerity of our repentance, but hope in a God of plentiful redemption who has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. We can hope because as J.C. Rao captures in these words, Jesus will not cast away his believing people because of shortcomings and infirmities. It is his glory to make much of their weak graces and to pardon their many faults. Our God, is the God of plentiful redemption who has redeemed us in Jesus Christ. We can have this assurance and hope. From night to glimmer of morning, you eagerly wait. Hope is dawning. You hope like Martha, whose brother Lazarus had died. She was in the midst of despair until she heard the words, your brother will rise again. She eagerly awaits, and her hopes dawns as Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come out. Like the disciples whose beloved master had been crucified, died and buried. They were in the dark night of despair until they saw the risen Jesus Christ. Hope dawns as they hear Jesus say, See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see like the church who believe in Jesus Christ's first coming and now eagerly awaits his second coming. We may struggle right now as we wait, but there will be a time when our faith shall be sight. And at that time, there'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, and no more guilt, no more sin as we experience in full the joy of God's plentiful redemption for his church. From night to glimmer of morning, you eagerly wait. Hope is dawning. It has dawned. Morning comes with Jesus Christ.
1: Let us rise as we sing a song of response, and can it be.
2: free soul.
1: nation. No
2: condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all
0: Of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of our Almighty God and the communion of the Holy Spirit, be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Please be seated.